morning, friends. So we uh, value the life of Christ. I think that's obvious. We're here week in and week out um, studying his life, studying his words, singing praises to him, uh, and so forth. We are enraptured by the person of Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian, really. And so we come week after week and embrace these things and um, are thankful for them. So as we think about the value of Christ, you start with why, why did he come to earth, right? Uh, we just finished celebrating the Advent season where we celebrated the birth of our Savior, God coming to this planet as one of us. We read things like joy to the world, the Lord has come. We, um, hear, we heard the angel say his name will be called Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And so we see these things and they resonate with us. We hear them, they resonate with us. And we discover uh, through life and scripture, at least, at least uh, Christian life and scripture, that we value the person of Christ. And we value him, um, first of all, because he, he brings salvation to us, right? Without him, there is no salvation. And so we value Christ on the basis of his salvation that he provides to his people. He came to save. Secondly, we, we value Christ because his life is exemplary. In other words, if you look into the Gospels, you see that Jesus did everything right. You, you notice that he um, was loving, kind, patient, good in every circumstance. And so we value the example of Christ Jesus. We, as Christians, try to follow the, the uh, example of Christ Jesus. Jesus said this himself, right? He said, follow me. The Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. The Apostle John said this in 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him, that is Jesus, if you say you're a Christian, uh, you ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If you call yourself a believer, you should follow Jesus' example, is the idea there. But it's important that we, that we understand there's a significant and important difference between his exa example and his saving. In other words, no one is saved by Jesus' example. Following Jesus' example will never get you to heaven. And that's important to understand. The value of the life of Jesus Christ is primarily and foremost about him saving us from our sins, not about us following his example, although we should. Right? In fact, I would say that when someone embraces the gospel of God, which is Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, which makes that a desire of our heart, we begin to be transformed into his likeness, right? We become more and more like Jesus the longer we walk with him. This is what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. That we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So his example is certainly of great value. But it, doesn't, it never replaces his ultimate value, which is our salvation. In today's story, in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we need to first and foremost grasp the point of the story. And so to get the point of the story, I need to read the story. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Mark chapter 3, and I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in the pew in front of you. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> Again, Jesus <clears throat> entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save life 
or to kill, but they were silent. And he looked around them in anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So Mark included, just so you, you aren't confused between Jesus' example and his primary value, which is his saving work, um, Mark is including the story here to complete a series of five stories from chapter 1, verse 1, up to chapter 3, verse 6. In that chapter and a half, there is five stories that define or record the opposition that Jesus faced for doing what he was doing, for preaching, for healing, for um, teaching. All these things are the reason that these, these stories are recorded. And so <clears throat> this last one, this last story that I just read for you, highlights the seriousness of this opposition. My three main sermon points this morning are going to fall under the category of the value of Christ's example. And this is why I introduced my sermon this way, so that you wouldn't um, misunderstand what I'm trying to do with this text. Uh, you, you may, if I didn't make a point of it, walk away this morning thinking, oh, the great example of Jesus Christ, I need to follow, and that's true, you need to follow the example of Jesus Christ. But that's not the main point of the story. The main point of the story is the saving work of Christ. And along the way, because of who he is and what he does and says, we can follow his example to our benefit. Does that make sense? Okay. So my, my, my goal here is to try to walk this line as carefully as I can um, without confusing the masses. Okay? So the first point that you see in your bulletin is this, doing good is right, but it will produce criticism. Have you ever proven that fact in your life? Doing good is right, but it will produce criticism when you do so. Being criticized for doing the right thing is common. We're well aware of it. We see it all around us, particularly in a few areas here. One, politics, right? If you do the right thing, doesn't matter what party you're in, the other party doesn't like it. So doing the right thing in politics usually ends up with criticism. Whenever we befriend an outcast, whether it's in elementary school, high school, or in our current workplace, we usually catch criticism for associating with an outcast. They're an outcast for a reason, right? Next, we, we see it in all sorts of areas of our lives, even including paying taxes. So if you pay your taxes and anybody else knows you pay your taxes, you might get a little grief for that or at least, uh, um, you know, some judgment about it because they didn't pay their taxes, as I should have. This is what we see here in this story, except this story is about Jesus Christ and the distorted, the distorted view of the Sabbath that these people had. This distorted version of the Sabbath was central to the Pharisees' religious system, and so Jesus had to address their corrupt view of the Sabbath. It was a serious matter. He had to do what was right, and because he had to do what was right, he incurred criticism. Whenever you expose a weakness, insufficiency, or ignorance, sin, you open yourself up to criticism by those you expose. And this comes from those closest to us as well as those we don't even know. The Pharisees, of course, were offended. <clears throat> but this wasn't the first offense, was it? Remember back in the story in chapter 2, verses, I think, 1 through 12? These guys lower their friend through the roof, and he was crippled. And what does Jesus do? He says, your sins are forgiven, which is offensive to a monotheistic culture. <laughs> because you're not God, and only God can forgive sins. Right? Isn't that what was going on there in that story? It was offensive to the religious leaders. Wait a minute. Only God can forgive sins. 
If Jesus, if we could read in between the lines, I'm sure we would read, and Jesus said, bingo. You're right. And that would be offensive to these monotheistic folks. All right, so this wasn't the first offense that Jesus caused this group. They were befriended when, when Jesus was friendly with a group of sinners. Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? They were offended when, when Jesus didn't fast or his disciples didn't fast as they thought they should. They were offended when he allowed his disciples to pick grain and eat grain on the Sabbath. You don't want to do that. It's offensive. And now here, they're extremely offended when Jesus decides to heal a man who needs healing. But it's on the Sabbath. So Jesus made a practice of offending the Pharisees. And it was not by mistake. It was intentional. He publicly defied <clears throat> the unbiblical rules and artificial regulations that had been invented by well-meaning religious leaders of the past. But after time, these regulations lost their purpose and became burdensome and even counterproductive. And as Jesus challenged their thinking, what happened? They resented it. Cause criticism, offense. And because Jesus is God in human flesh, which he made a point of in the last story, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. So if the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who created the Sabbath, is teaching you about the Sabbath, and you're offended by that, <laughs> what does that mean? That you have the problem, not the Lord of the Sabbath. Not the creator of the Sabbath, but, but me. I got the problem, evidently. And this is what Jesus was trying to communicate. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I know why I initiated the Sabbath. Please hear me out on this one. So according to Luke's record, this is Mark's record, and the three of the four Gospels record this same story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but Luke's record of this story, Jesus was teaching. Mark doesn't say he was teaching, but Luke said Jesus was teaching on this occasion. He was teaching, um, obviously, the Old Testament. He was an expository preacher. He, he preached from the Old Testament, which he had. And it was a joy to his listeners. It, it says in chapter 2 that they marveled at his teaching. It brought great joy to them, as if one who had authority, one who knew what he was talking about. <clears throat> but his teaching as we've discovered, upset the Pharisees because it exposed them and undermined their power and control over the people they were supposed to be shepherding. He was confronting the error of their understanding and the error of their behavior, the error of their shepherding, or non-shepherding, I should say. <clears throat> so the first thing that, that we see here Jesus doing is being aware of a guy's need. It says here, verse 1, he entered the synagogue and there was a man with a withered hand. He was aware. So doing good requires being aware. Again, you're going to say, well, that, that sounds like it's an example. It is an example. But I need, to, I need to preach this text, and the text is full of the example of Christ, but not missing the purpose of Christ. Okay, so doing good requires awareness. In order to do good, Jesus needed to be aware of his circumstances, just like you need to be aware of your circumstances if you're going to do good, right? If you walk through life oblivious to the needs of people around you, you're rarely going to do good. You'll be doing selfish things your whole life. But Jesus, we see here on this Sabbath day, as he was teaching, a man with a withered hand was present, and Luke said it was his right hand, and so Jesus knew if this guy's right-handed and his right hand is withered, he's got a difficult life in front of him. I can help this man. In the first century, this condition would have made this man's life almost impossible. There was no workman's comp in the first century. Uh, no welfare, no government assistance programs whatsoever. Usually someone with this condition would be totally dependent on family and friends. If family and friends didn't come through, this guy would starve. That's a serious situation, I'd say. Jesus recognized that. He was aware of the surroundings. And so he wanted to do something about it. Now, 
Most commentators acknowledge that this man's condition was most likely not life-threatening. He had a withered hand. He was alive. He was there, so he probably wasn't going to die before the hour was over. But it was a dire situation nonetheless. And so Jesus, being a, a man of compassion, a man of love and care, wanted to help him. I think many times we miss opportunities to do good because we aren't alert to our surroundings. How many times do we pass people every day that are in deep need and we don't even recognize it? Literally have withered hands. We walk right past us and we don't see it. I think this is more common than we'd like to admit. Because we're focused on not them, but us. I was a youth pastor at Westside Baptist many moons ago. And I, there was some stuff going on between some parents and myself and some of the kids. And I was mentioning to the senior pastor there at the time, uh, you know, I'm a little concerned about what they think about me. If they're really saying that, what do they think? And John uh, and uh, my senior pastor said, John, don't worry about it. Uh, they don't think of you. <laughs> right? I went, oh, <laughs> you're probably right. <laughs> That's like us. That's like all of us. You know, the reason we don't, aren't aware of the problems people that are going on around us is we don't think of people except ourselves most of the time. Right? Enter Jesus, everything's different. He thinks of others. He walks in the room, sees a man with a need. He recognizes it immediately. So doing good requires us being aware. Secondly, doing good usually brings scrutiny. <clears throat> doing good brings scrutiny. You learn this in junior high, right? Christi uh, criticism usually comes from people who are scrutinizing you. I want you to look closely at verse 2. Look what it says. And they watched Jesus. Who's they? That's the Pharisees. They watched Jesus. Now, this watching here, this word, uh, was anything but casual. It wasn't a casual watching, like, hey, there's a famous teacher in the building. I'm going to pay, you know. No, not at all. Uh, it was an intensive, sinister scrutiny. The original word actually means lying in wait for. They were lying in wait for Jesus. Some commentators believe that this man with a withered hand, withered hand was probably planted there by the Pharisees so that they could watch Jesus, so they could catch him in an error, so they could accuse him, it says in that verse, so that they might accuse him. It was a plant job. Now, let me repeat some territory I covered last week. The Talmud the Talmud is rabbinical commentary on God's Word, okay? The Talmud is rabbinical commentary on God's Word. And the rabbis who wrote the Talmud wrote 24 chapters on what it meant to not work, to keep that one law in the Old Testament. God said, don't work on the Sabbath. It took them 24 chapters to explain what that meant. And that rabbinical law, not God's word, but their rabbinical law, the Talmud, became the standard. And so now, everybody's afraid to step outside for fear of breaking the law. <laughs> this, is, this is really a sad situation that we have in front of us. So, Jesus was not permitted by rabbinical law to heal this man on the Sabbath because it was the Sabbath. And here's what was in the rabbinical law that they would associate with this situation. Doctors may not treat their patients on the Sabbath unless their life is threatened. Unless they're in a life-threatening jeopardy situation, the, their own doctors could not treat them because their, their life wasn't in jeopardy. So, since this man's life was obviously not in jeopardy, he walked into this place, he has a withered hand, heal him after the Sabbath. They said, we've got you, Jesus. We've got you nailed. Right where we want you. you listen to this, it gets worse. No family members could assist their own families who were sick on the Sabbath unless life was at stake. So husbands, those of us who depend on our wives 
when we get the sniffles. <clears throat> Good luck on the Sabbath, right? I'm pretty sure 50% of the guys in this room wouldn't live if they got sick on the Sabbath, at least in the first century Jewish culture. If you tried to help your spouse on the Sabbath and their life wasn't in jeopardy, you would be convicted of working and executed the next day. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I want to live in that culture. No, thank you. Exodus 31, 14 through 17 states that the Sabbath violators, Sabbath violators will be executed. The only problem was God's law was not the rabbinic law. They made that stuff up. God simply said, don't work on the Sabbath. And I'm sure some of you wives think, okay, man, serving my husband when he's got the sniffles on the Sabbath is actually work, right? It's not just about bringing a, a can of soup. But the Pharisees here didn't care about the suffering of this man with the withered hand. They only cared about the details of the law, the petty tradition, the power over the people. We're the rabbis. You know, this is how Jesus was treated. When he did what was right, he was criticized for it. And this is the criticism that came. This is what we're, we're dealing with right now. They scrutinized his behavior, said, you're in the wrong. We've got you nailed. Now, as Christians, um, I'm certain that you know that we, we expect to be treated by the world the same way the world treated him, right? This is what Jesus said. Um, if you follow me, the world's going to treat you like it treated me. Don't be surprised at that. And so if the world hates you, know that it hated me. We need to know, Christian friends, that people are always watching Christians to catch them in error. In order to undermine, in order to cut them down, in order to put them in their place. They've offended me long enough with all this better than, you know, holier than thou, goody two-shoes conversation and conduct. I'm going to keep a close eye on those guys. And the minute they step out of what I perceive to be the line, I'm going to nail them. That's exactly what Jesus experienced here. It's what we can experience as Christians in this world. And so we need to be mindful of that and do what we can to avoid the appearance of evil in any department that we're in. But doing good is right, but brings criticism. That's what we learn here. But we're also dealing with the savior of the world. Doing good is right, but requires conviction is the second point. Doing good is right, but requires conviction. <clears throat> do you think Jesus had conviction in this setting? I'm pretty sure of it. I think sometimes we can get in unnecessary trouble because we think something is right, but as it turns out, we've been misguided in some way and we weren't right. You ever been there? I've been there a few times and it's uncomfortable. So in this case, Jesus had to walk carefully, tread lightly, be sure, certain, be convicted of his opinion on the matter. And of course, he was. Are you convinced it's right? Whatever it is that you're doing or saying, that's good. Are you convinced it's right? I think this takes some wisdom here. Um, Jesus could have, of course, waited until the Sabbath ended to avoid this, con uh, this confrontation. He could have waited four or five hours, however long, because the Sabbath ended Saturday night at six. This was probably taking place somewhere between one and two in the afternoon. He could have waited and avoided this whole thing. Why didn't he do that? I mean, why, why, why stir the pot unnecessarily? Evidently, Jesus thought it was necessary to stir the pot. He wanted to make an important spiritual point. And the only way to do that was to confront this particular opinion. He intentionally chose not to postpone the healing because he wanted to confront the hypocrisy and misunderstanding of the people's views of the Sabbath. Remember, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He knows what it's supposed to be about. <clears throat> if he would have waited until the Sabbath ended, the opportunity to instruct would have passed. And he wanted God's people to 
experience real rest, joy, instead of burden and weariness, and so he wanted to deal with this immediately. He wanted to remind everyone that being God, he was Lord of the Sabbath and that he had created Sabbath for the benefit of people, not vice versa. Jesus was not only convinced that he was right, he knew that he was right because, like I said, he was the creator of the Sabbath. He could not have gotten this wrong. Next, have your words been carefully chosen? Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Jesus carefully chose those words. These weren't just random thoughts that came to his mind, like what happens to me when I get out of my, my uh, text here in front of me. See, Jesus chose these words very carefully. As we set out to do good or to speak good, we need to make sure that we give no reason to those trying to trip us up to be upset. They're going to be upset whether or not we give them reason, but let's not give them that reason uh, and, and not be the reason that people accuse us or wound us. In other words, let's, let's never deserve the abuse that we receive. The Apostle Paul addresses this. Jesus addresses this. My dad addressed this when I was a kid. He said, John, never give a reason for anybody to punch you in the mouth. Don't do stupid stuff. Don't do say stupid things, and you won't get punched. This is how it works, all right? So this is, how, this is, this is good wisdom here that we hear from Jesus and Paul and my dad. Don't give those who are, who are scrutinizing you a good reason to abuse you. That's simple, isn't it? That makes sense. The answer to Jesus' question, though, was obvious. But if they stated the answer publicly, they would be acknowledging that Jesus was right, they were wrong, and that the man should, in fact, be healed, even on the Sabbath. Any answer to Jesus' question would have had a total crushing result on the Pharisees' position. I want to take you through all the possible answers here to Jesus' question in verse 4. Real quickly, this will take a minute. Follow along. Jesus asked them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? Answer is either yes or no, but these are religious folks, they would say, of course, right? How about the next part of the question? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do harm? Of course not. It's never lawful to do harm, right? Let's go to the next. To save life. Yes, of course it's good to save life. How about to kill on the Sabbath? No. Those are all the possible answers. There's no other options. No matter which answer the Pharisees gave, they put themselves in a corner, which means Jesus should have healed this man on the Sabbath. There's no alternative. They were between a rock and a hard place, and they knew this. And so, <laughs> at least they demonstrated some wisdom. This was their response to Jesus' question. Now, listen to me carefully to their response. There's some wisdom for you. They closed their mouth. There was no answer except, Jesus, you should heal that man. Can you heal him? Please heal him. <laughs> this is, <laughs> it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus would have been doing nothing wrong. So, <clears throat> I'm going to come back in a second to that. Have, have, next, though, the next part of this second point is, have your emotions been balanced and checked? Look at verse 5. Notice how Jesus' Jesus's emotions are balanced. He says, and Jesus looked around at them with anger. Do you need to have it explained to you why he was angry? I don't think so. It's obvious why he was angry. These guys cared more for the detail of their belief system, their religious system, than they cared about this man who was hurting. That would make you angry. Right? The emotion of anger, of course, is the most likely emotion in human experience that turns to sin. 
It seems that this emotion is the one that is the most out of control in any of our emotions and that the one that gets us into trouble most quickly, anger. And so we need to check that whenever we experience that particular emotion. But how can we check to see if our motives are right to do good? Sometimes I, I think that we can decide to do something that's good for the wrong reason, right? So how do we check our emotions, make sure they're balanced and good? Jesus here was more concerned with people than religious minutiae. He cared about these people, this man. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were concerned for legal detail, which proved that they had forgotten that the mercy and grace of God was meant to be shown by people in need on the Sabbath particularly on the Sabbath. It was designed to be a blessing to people, not a burden to people. But the Pharisees here, in the name of piety, became insensitive to God and insensitive to the sufferings of God's people. Right here, they, they stopped being shepherds. And Jesus' anger was legitimate. It was directed at the stubbornness of their hearts. And it is amazing that Mark records the next emotion literally in the very next word. He says, he looked around them in anger. What's next? Grieved at the hardness of their heart. He felt compassion for these Pharisees. He felt compassion because of what sin had done, how far sin had gone in their lives to the point where they didn't care about people. God here in this story was moved with compassion for these poor Pharisees. Look what sin has done. Can't you see? Can't you see? And the, the, the idea there with, in the word grieved is really beyond just grief, it's an idea of deep, profound grief over how much damage sin had done to the human spirit. That it would deny a hurting man healing in a moment when he could receive it. Can you imagine being that man with the withered hand, knowing that that man over there could heal me, he wants to, but my religious leaders and spiritual guides are over here saying he can't. That puts a different twist on this story for you, doesn't it? Religious leaders were more concerned with their authority over the people than they were the people themselves. Thirdly, <clears throat> third and final point, doing good is right, but will have consequences. This is similar to the first one, but a bit different because basically verse six, but doing good offends those who do bad. This is kind of the idea of paying your taxes as you should. Uh, first time someone hears that you pay your taxes as you should, the person who doesn't is offended by that. Uh, first time you help someone who they won't, it offends them. Um, so do you think that Jesus knew that this confrontation with the Pharisees would ultimately lead to his death? You think Jesus knew that? I think he did. If he's sovereign, he's sovereign over that. There's no doubt of it. In fact, Luke's record, he writes that Jesus knew what they were thinking in the context of this story. He knew what was in their heart. He knew their lethal plot. He knew that they were trying to set him up. He was truly the Lord of the Sabbath as a whole. But I want you to follow me here just for a second. He was also Lord of the Sabbath in particular, this Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath, but he's Lord of this Sabbath. He is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over little things. We like to say, oh yeah, God is sovereign. What a great doctrine. I, am, I just love that doctrine, so important to me. But he's not sovereign over my job loss. He's not sovereign over my wife's cancer. He's not sovereign over fill in the blank. 
He's sovereign, oh yeah, but not over me. Really? What's sovereign mean? <laughs> he's Lord of the Sabbath, and he's Lord over this Sabbath. Over every detail of this Sabbath. The Pharisees may have, if indeed they planted this man, may have thought they'd pulled a good one. When all along, God had planted that man there, not the Pharisees. Jesus was truly the Lord of the Sabbath. It's worth noting here in this story in Mark that the man with the withered hand did not approach Jesus and ask to be healed, which is why some commentators believe he was a plant. Everybody else in Capernaum was coming up to Jesus asking to be healed, right? Waiting in line at his door, hoping that his shadow would pass by them, that they may be healed. The crowds, the crowds were clamoring to be near Jesus, to be healed. This guy comes into a Sabbath where this great teacher who can heal people's sickness is teaching, and this guy doesn't say anything? <laughs> so Jesus, being aware of everything in this situation, including the man's need, calls this guy up. He says here in verse 3, he said to the man with the hand, come here. Come stand in the middle. Where, was, where is here? in the Jewish synagogue. If you're the teacher, here is here, where I am, up front, where everybody can see you. Jesus was bringing this man out of the crowd where he may not have been able to be seen too well, up front, where no one could miss the point. Come here, Jesus said. And again, Luke recorded that Jesus was teaching here. And so at the end of this teaching is when this took place. What was he teaching? He was teaching. What was he teaching? The Old Testament. Okay. Where in the Old Testament was he teaching? You remember I told you that Jesus chose his words carefully? Guess what? The words he chose carefully were recorded in Deuteronomy 30 that you heard read for you earlier. It's most likely that Jesus was teaching Deuteronomy 30 about choosing life over death. And how God wants you to enjoy life instead of death. And, and this guy who was in the audience that the Pharisees thought they planted, God planted, so Jesus could pull him up front and say, look at this sermon illustration right here. Exhibit A. Life or death? Life. Good or harm? Good. Let's heal this guy. Oh, hold on, hold on. Wait a minute. We can't. Well, it's Sabbath. What? Have you not been listening to my sermon? <sighs> I get angry at this. <laughs> you know, and here's the, here's the thing, and I said this in the first service, and it's so easy to just dish on these Pharisees, isn't it? To say, what in the world? And then you go look in the mirror and you go, oh, <laughs> that's me, right? Jesus called this man to stand up in the middle of the room. This man was most likely the sermon illustration. Matthew's account of this story is very interesting. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this story. Matthew's account's very interesting. If you want to follow along, I'm going to turn my Bible over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, we'll get back to Mark 3 in a second. In verses 10 through 12, it says this about this story. <clears throat> and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, wait a minute, different story. No, it's the same story, different perspective. Matthew says the Pharisees asked Jesus, Jesus if it was legal to heal. They are the Pharisees. Here in verse 10, and the man was there with a withered hand, and the Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? They did the asking. In Matthew's memory, Jesus said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? 
So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That gives us a little bit more insight, doesn't it? Each of these Pharisees had sheep, and sheep do dumb stuff even on the Sabbath. And they go help them. They pull them out of the ditch. They take them out of the fence. Whatever. And so, <clears throat> evidently, Jesus was making a point here that they're very willing to help a sheep, but unwilling to help a man. Listen to how Jesus evaluates the Pharisees at the end of his ministry. This is at the end of Matthew 23. So Jesus' ministry has basically come to a conclusion. He's had many encounters with these Pharisees. And this is his opinion of them at the end of his ministry. After three years of dealing with them. They, in Matthew 23, 4, they, the Pharisees, tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. In other words, they could if they wanted to, but they won't. The question by Jesus exposed the Pharisees and their religious system like nothing else could. And he exposed it in three ways, quickly. One, it exposed the unlawful nature of their additions to God's law. All these rabbinical laws were not God's law. That's why there was a problem. Just stick to God's law. Don't work. Is it work to heal the man who needs healing? Absolutely not. <laughs> right? So choosing not to help this brother in need is obviously not God's will. So by their unwillingness to help a brother in need, they were the ones who were actually breaking the Sabbath. The Pharisees. It wasn't Jesus. And Jesus' question exposed that. You're the guys who are causing the problem. Second way that this exposed the Pharisees and their religious system is that it revealed the condition of their heart the callousness of their heart. They didn't care about this suffering man. As his spiritual shepherds, they had abdicated their spiritual responsibilities toward, towards him on all levels. And this question exposed it. And everybody sitting there listening to Jesus' question are looking back and forth between these guys and Jesus going, uh, yeah. Thirdly, Jesus' question exposed the Pharisees' lethal plot. Think of the irony of this. These guys <laughs> who claimed to be the protectors of the Sabbath were plotting murder on the Sabbath. <laughs> Who's got the problem here? Wow. Jesus' question was a crushing and embarrassing question. For the Pharisees and their hatred for Jesus was based on their wounded pride. Jesus nailed them and it wasn't it wasn't because he enjoyed nailing them it's because he was committed to the truth. And then it says Jesus looked around at them in anger. This reflects the attitude of God towards anybody with a hard heart including you and me. Hard hearts make God, makes God angry. But aren't you thankful for the next emotion listed? It causes grief. And what's included in grief? Compassion. God is compassionate towards hard-hearted people. And I would say that's worthy of a, a, a full-throated amen. Amen. Because that's me. Even in the midst of displaying a hard heart towards God and towards God's people, Jesus had compassion on them. You may be one with a hard heart here this morning. You may be one who has loved ones with hard hearts or co-workers with hard hearts. 
and hard hearts angers God, but along with that, that anger comes the, the overwhelming grace and mercy of God towards hard-hearted people. And so, friends, we, we have a Savior who in his perfection and in his righteousness hates hard-heartedness, but at the same time, in his divine heart, loves and has compassion towards people who are affected by sin like this. The last thing that I want to say to you this morning from this text is found in verse 6. <clears throat> it says this in chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Doing good will cause enemies to join against me. We've, we've heard it said, uh, uh, what is it, how is it said? I can't remember what it's said. An, an enemy, or a, a friend of my enemy is an enemy of mine, right? Something like that. These guys, the Herodians and the Pharisees, couldn't have been more opposed to one another. They hated each other. Why? The Herodians were secular Jews. They didn't follow God's laws. They were simply secular Jews. They followed Herod Antipas, the local governor. That's why they're called Herodians. Herod-odians. Herodians. They were big fans of Herod. They were loyal to Rome. Were the Jews? No. They hated Rome, and they hated anybody who was loyal to Rome, including their fellow Jews. Herodians were Jews who were loyal to Rome. And the Pharisees, who were supposed to be protectors of the Jewish culture and religion, went and sided with those who they hated because of their unbelievable hatred for Jesus. They were going to team up with sworn enemies to get rid of Jesus. You would have thought that having witnessed amazing Miracle after miracle after miracle that Jesus done, had done in their presence, they would have acknowledged a chance of being in the wrong. Maybe we've got this wrong. You would have thought would have come to their mind. Or at least had stopped to think a little bit about what happened. Maybe we're missing something. Maybe we're not seeing the whole picture. But... Back to Luke's account of this story. Listen to this sad comment. It says they were filled with rage. At the healing, they were filled with rage when Jesus healed this man. They were so prideful and resentful towards Jesus, they couldn't see straight. They lost their minds. They stomped out of the synagogue in a rage. <clears throat> How do you talk about that? The Herodians were all too willing to conspire with the Pharisees because they were afraid of Jesus' political aspirations. He had none, but they were afraid of them. And they didn't want any chance of their Herod to be overthrown. So they joined the Pharisees to develop a plot to see Jesus hang on a cross. Which was God's intention. It was God's intention to upset the Pharisees. It was God's intention for them to get angry. It was God's intention for them to join the political Herodians so that one day in the near future, they would hang Jesus on the cross out of jealousy, and in that death, the Son of God would pay the penalty of my sin. And listen to this, and theirs.
Jesus always does what's right. Jesus came to earth when he didn't have to, but he did it because that's the only way we would be saved from our sins. That was right. Jesus incurred criticism, wrath, hatred, anger, consequences, because he did what was right. What a savior. He came to do what was right for us. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we uh, we humbly acknowledge our role in all of this. We acknowledge that our sin is why you came. Our sin is why you endured what you did. And you came knowing full well the outcome, the consequences, so that we might know salvation so that we might have our sins forgiven. And so that many, if not most, of these Pharisees repented of their sin and came in faith to you, we read in the book of Acts. Always doing what is right. Father, I pray that as we embrace the value of Christ's saving work, that we wouldn't forget his example of doing right around us. We have so many in our own lives that, that need Christ, so many in our own lives that need our love and our compassion, need our forgiveness. Help us not to miss that. Bless us, Father, now as we contemplate on more deeper levels this great story in Mark 3. Bless us now as we go our way. In Jesus' name, amen.